This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It's hard for me to believe that that was a pop hit, a number one U.S. pop hit, in fact, in the year 1968. In case you don't remember it, for some reason, or God forbid have never heard it, that was the song Grazin' in the Grass by Hugh Masekela. Mr. Masekela left us this week. He's been described as the father of South African jazz, and I must confess, not being a great jazz aficionado, I... I'm not that familiar with his body of work, but I do remember that song, and by God, it is a great one. And in fact, in these troubled times, don't we need more upbeat music like that? In fact, fade that up again, will you, Mr. McMillan? Now, one thing I, I do know, although I'm getting this secondhand from our Los Angeles correspondent, Mr. Don Rose, is that that song was sort of a hit by accident. Reportedly, Masakila was laying down tracks for an album, and the recording engineer told him, well, we, we got a few minutes left. So, they improvised. After evidently a few minutes of like, okay, you'll kind of play this riff, I'll do that, we'll work it around, you come in, sing this. They threw together Grazing in the Grass. A happy confluence to be sure, and I just want to say, Mr. Masakila, we do salute you. And by odd conjunction, we have another upbeat, happy song, which sadly we're reminded of because of the passing of its uh, composer. In this case, the composer was Edwin Hawkins. He was an Oakland pianist, choir leader, composer, and arranger, who won one of his four Grammy Awards for a rather rousing 1960s gospel fusion classic. Now, if you ask me to name another gospel fusion classic, I'd be in a world of hurt. But I think I could probably come up with this one, which was Oh Happy Day, which, Mr. Millen, I think you need to cue up 30 seconds up for us. And uh, a bit of luck plays a role in this song. I guess it probably does play a role in every song, and probably, if you think about it, every aspect of life. But the San Francisco Chronicle did note that Oh, Happy Day is an 18th century hymn. It got rearranged by Hawkins as a jazzy gospel and pop vocal mix and was one of eight songs on the album Let Us Go Into the House of the Lord. It was released by Century Records. To everybody's surprise, it became a hit after... Rock music DJ Abe Vokokesh, and I frankly don't remember Abe Vokokesh, but 
perhaps you do, he began playing it on the FM radio station KSAN. The next thing Edwin Hawkins knew, the song was an international sensation, selling 7 million copies in 1969 and earning him a Grammy. So in his passing, let us also salute the now late Edwin Hawkins. All right, on last week's show, we kind of took a little spin into the world of deep politics, I guess you might say, by by way of our review of the movie The Post. We quoted liberally from uh, one of our favorite uh, investigative-type journalists, Jim DiEugenio. And I think that uh, we're going to have Jim come on next week's program and round out his perspective on The Post. And before this hour is out, we're going to do some more rounding out ourselves on uh, that and related topics. But since we spent all of last week's program uh, delving into this area, quoting largely from several books, Secrets, by Daniel Ellsberg, The Powers That Be, by David Halberstam, and others. We did not get around to doing something we like to do every week, which was to cite the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, to make it up to you, the listener, we're going to do two rounds of of that today. All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for lobsters, at least Swiss lobsters, with the news that Switzerland has become the second country after New Zealand to ban the boiling alive of lobsters for food, arguing that the process causes the crustaceans unnecessary pain. Starting March 1st, lobsters must be knocked unconscious with an electric shock, or have their brains destroyed with an ice pick or knife before being dropped into the pot. Reportedly, this measure revives a controversy over whether lobsters even feel pain, which many scientists dispute. To which I have to add, which scientists are these? Mr. McMillan speculates that this may be scientists funded by the Red Lobster Corporation. But actually, the week quotes a marine science professor at Northeastern University in Boston who says, I really find it quite remarkable that people attribute to these animals human-like responses when they simply don't have the hard wire for it. You know, it's one thing to say you have psychic pain about, say, the breakup you had last week with your boyfriend, but the ouch pain stimulus response uh, seems, seems like that'd be pretty similar to what we experience. I don't really think I'm going out on a limb on this one. Anyway, the Swiss don't eat much lobster, they point out, and the U.S. exported $147 million worth of live lobsters to the European Union in 2016, but only $360,000 worth went to Switzerland. And and when I used that phrase, Swiss lobsters, a minute ago, of course, I would remind you that Switzerland, in fact, has no coastline. And it was a bad week last week for thrift with the news that a British man who tried to evade excess baggage fees on a flight home from Iceland by wearing 10 shirts and 8 pairs of pants, uh, in fact, got denied boarding onto his his British Airways flight after staff observed his, shall we say, bulky attire. But I guess British Airways was a good sport about it. They did refund his ticket. And it was an ugly week last week for... Taking a stand on principle, 
with the news that after Senator Richard Shelby failed to support the candidacy of his fellow Alabama Republican Roy Moore for Senate, fellow Alabama Republicans launched a drive to censure him. We remind you that Roy Moore was alleged by multiple women to have harassed or molested them when they were still teens. Richard Shelby said he would write in another Republican, which critics say was an act of, quote, disloyalty, unquote. All right, round one. Let's do it again. We would note that, according to the Week magazine, it was a good week a couple of weeks ago for talking to your toilet. After developers at CES 2018, the Consumer Electronics Expo, unveiled an internet-connected toilet. Talk about your internet of things, ladies and gentlemen. An internet-connected toilet that can be commanded to play music and respond to voice commands such as lift the seat and flush. This is for those of you who just can't stand the idea of actually having to either lift your toilet seat or flush the toilet. And at the same time, it was a bad week a couple weeks back for looking at both sides. With the news that a Milwaukee Christian Elementary School did apologize for a fourth grade homework assignment asking students to list three good reasons for slavery and three bad ones. Radio Parallax is unable to confirm that the extra credit assignment was name three good things about Hitler. And it was an ugly week a couple weeks back for, I don't know, the First Amendment, maybe the Second Amendment. I don't know. Here's the story. A Florida gunmaker has urged customers to buy assault rifles to use against anti-fascist demonstrators. They published an ad featuring four heavily armed men facing down a mob of unarmed, black-clad protesters beneath the words, Not today, Antifa. The ad also listed clashes between the anti-fascist group Antifa, and white supremacists. Reportedly, the marketing director at Spikes Tactical said the ad did not condone violence, adding, we're just trying to start a discussion. And a couple weeks back, it was probably both a bad and ugly week for mental status exams with the news that in the wake of President Trump's physical, at which point he was declared in excellent health, it was also noted that he passed a cognitive test designed to detect dementia. The White House's lead physician came forward to say after performing Trump's first physical exam in office, I've found no reason whatsoever to think the president has any issues whatsoever with his thought processes. We urge you, dear listener, to go online and look up the actual test, which is in various places. And then let us know if you find it reassuring that President Trump was correctly able to identify a lion, a camel, and a rhinoceros. I'm not saying that was all there was the test. He also had to draw a clock face and correctly connect a series of dots that started out with, well, there were letters and numbers. They started out with A went to 1, and then B went to etc. We presume the president was able to correctly assess that the sequence then went B2, C3, D4, and E5. We would also urge you, just for laughs, to take a look at some of the pictures which were in wide circulation in the wake of the president's weight being reported as 239 on his 6'2 frame. To clarify this 
issue, the president's photo was laid alongside one of Tom Brady, who, although being the same height, is reportedly 15 pounds less in weight. Except that it looks like a little more than 15 pounds of discrepancy between the two men. We will leave that up to you to decide. And speaking of the president and the ongoing investigation of him by Robert Mueller, we have this from Eric Felton, writing for theweeklystandard.com. President Trump's allies are already laying the groundwork for his impeachment defense. And it looks a lot like the strategy used by O.J. Simpson in his 1994 murder trial. Simpson's lawyers knew the evidence against their client was rather damning, so they put the police on trial instead. The defense created what's described as a conspiracy theory that racist cops planted evidence and framed O.J., knowing they would be facing mostly black jurors with the LAPD's rather ugly racial history, Simpson's defense, quote, just needed to give the jury a respectable reason to bring in with a straight face a verdict of not guilty, unquote. Similarly, notes Mr. Felton, the president's defenders plan to put the FBI and Robert Mueller's special counsel office on trial, giving Republicans an excuse to ignore any evidence that Trump cooperated with Russia and obstructed justice. Trumpists are claiming that the Justice Department relied on a Democratic-backed dossier to get a warrant to spy on the Trump team and are pointing to a since-fired FBI agent's anti-Trump text message as proof that the investigation is hopelessly tainted. It is noted that if there is an impeachment trial, Trump only has to win over 34 Senate Republicans. Eric Felton notes that like the majority of O.J. jurors, they will be disinclined to convict. Oh, and by the way, President Trump, and I hate to say that phrase, President Trump, recently tweeted that the Justice Department ought to look into how Hillary Clinton got away with deleting 33,000 emails, said David Ferris, writing in theweek.com, from the monumental years-long travesty of endless Benghazi investigations, all the way back to the speculation about the Clintons' involvement in the death of Vince Foster, the Republican Party has been pursuing baseless, ginned-up rabbit hunts of Clinton world. He notes that even with Bill and Hillary both now, now out of office and retired, the GOP is desperately hoping that a few more Clinton pseudo-investigations will distract the public from Trump's very grave legal jeopardy. Now I should note at this juncture that we've apparently just received a text message from a previous Radio Parallax guest, Mr. O.J. Simpson who we gather must be listening to this broadcast. He notes that, yes, he is proud of the dream team of lawyers he had back in the 90s and will do anything he can to help his friend, the Donald, whom he has evidently known since the days when O.J. was in Buffalo Bill's running back. We don't know if that is true, but we do know that Buffalo is, in fact, in the state of New York. The text also states that he's going to do everything he can to help find the real colluders. All right, well, we'll have to see how that goes. Since we're being a bit whimsical, let's pull another item from the whimsy file. There is, after all, a rather broad sweep of the kind of material that counts as public affairs. So by God, we're going to include this item, which is that a man in Russia crashed a stolen armored personnel carrier into a supermarket and then climbed through a shattered window to swipe a bottle of red wine. According to local media in Russia, the unnamed man was feeling bored 
when he stole the tank-like vehicle from a training ground in northern Russia and went on a joyride. He drove through a forest and into a small Arctic town of Apatiti, where he crushed a parked car beneath the vehicle's tracks before he smashed into the store. Police later arrested the man, whom they described as fill-in-the-blank. Yes, drunk. And it's alleged that Russia features in this story, which is that since the 1980s, companies owned by or licensed by Donald Trump have sold 1,300 condominiums worth $1.5 billion to shell companies in secretive all-cash transactions. These kind of purchases, which enable buyers to shield their finances and identities from scrutiny, are sometimes used by foreigners and criminals to launder money. This comes from BuzzFeed.com. And it was reported in another location that a great many of these were from Ukraine. And some weeks back, we we dared to raise the question on this program of whether the pendulum perhaps had swung too far on questions of um, sexual harassment. A lot of headlines cite the hashtag MeToo movement uh, as central to this, but I think it's broader than that. But a couple weeks back, some French women got involved in this controversy According to Le Monde, a hundred French women artists, writers, and academics are asking whether the hashtag MeToo movement is a threat to sexual freedom. These included the iconic actress Catherine Deneuve. In an open letter to the newspaper, they argued that the flood of sexual harassment accusations against powerful men, a wave started by the exposure of Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein as a serial predator, had gone too far Now was now creating a totalitarian environment. They said rape is a crime, but insistent or clumsy flirting is not a crime, nor is gallantry a chauvinist aggression. They decried a feminism that required, in their words, quote, hatred of men and of sexuality, unquote. For her part, Catherine Deneuve clarified her stance later, saying she did not want to minimize the seriousness of assault, but merely to warn against social media lynchings. It was noted that the global reaction, particularly in the English language media, was intense. Some accused Lamont of siding with the pigs or betraying the cause of women. And somewhere along the way, an anonymous female journalist has set up a website, uh, which I will slightly paraphrase as Crappy Media Men. This is an online database of male journalists whom women co-workers accused of various unsubstantiated offenses, from sexual assault to weird lunch dates. Writing in nymag.com, Andrew Sullivan said, True abuses of male power deserve to be punished. But the pendulum is not swinging too far in the other direction. Take the crappy media men database. This list names men who sent, quote, creepy DMs, especially when drunk, unquote, and were guilty of, quote, flirting, unquote, and clumsy come-ons. This is on the same list of men alleged to have committed rapes, assaults, and other crimes and horrors. To equate the two and subject men to anonymous character and career destruction is true McCarthyism. We have to say this is making us a bit nervous, and for God's sake, we're not trying to defend, you know, horrible people like Harvey Weinstein. But don't you think shaming somebody for, quote, weird lunch dates, unquote, is, is, is a bit much? Now, we understand next month... Uh, David Attenborough is going to have a new series on planet Earth, which should be appearing on PBS. We're looking forward to that. We can also recommend to you Mr. Attenborough's appearance on the New Yorker Radio Hour last week, which I enjoyed. 
Should we know that for more than 60 years, David Attenborough has traveled the world in search of interesting animals to film? But he did report to the oldie, a UK publication, that uh, one of his scariest experiences happened. One of his scariest experiences happened at home in London. Said Attenborough, "I'd been living away for four months with Dyaks in central Borneo. Getting back home. I mean, let me try this in a David Attenborough voice. Getting back home was wonderful. Crisp sheets." And my dear wife Jane, exhausted, I went to bed and woke up drenched in sweat and thought, this is it. This is malaria. This is what you always dreaded. So I woke up my poor wife and said, excuse me, I've got malaria. What do I do? But at that point, he put his hand on the bed sheet and found it red hot. While I was away, Jane had bought an electric blanket with dual control. Mine was on all night. I was absolutely parboiled. By the way, Radio Parallax is running down the rumor that uh, that video you may have seen uh, on the web about the honey badger was originally voiced by David Attenborough. We're going to see if we can run that one down. Anyway, speaking of the natural world, we do have some good news to report. Amid all the doom and gloom over global warming, the hole in the ozone layer and over Antarctica is slowly healing. We cited uh, the news from Australia a few months ago, but apparently things are good over Antarctica as well. The 7.6 million square mile breach caused by the chlorine-containing chemicals known as chlorofluorocarbons. Well, the good news is that back in the 80s, nearly 200 countries signed the Montreal Protocol, an agreement to phase out the production and use of CFCs, and, uh, well, it it looks like it's starting to bite. It was said decades ago that once CFCs reach the upper atmosphere, they linger for decades. And, well, (laughs) I guess since they started cutting down decades ago, it's, again, starting to decline finally. Because, well, these molecules do form free radicals when they're uh, up in the upper atmosphere. And uh, in that state, they're able to take out ozone molecules. And, frankly, we need ozone molecules because... Ozone, although quite rare, happens to be spectacularly good at absorbing ultraviolet radiation. The hole is expected to heal completely in 50 to 60 more years. Since we just gave you some good news, let's do some, a little bit scary news. Let's mix with good news. I would cite in this case the cover story of the current Economist magazine, titled The New Titans and How to Tame Them. And yes, they are referring to Amazon, Facebook, Google, etc. Three companies, among others, we've been trying to slap around (laughs) over the past few weeks to months. We hope you heard the Science Friday program last week featuring Ira Flato, where they took a look at these tech giants and uh, (laughs) made an interesting comparison, one that I'm not sure we used this exact phrase on the program, but certainly I've been thinking about it and was planning to. Maybe great minds think alike. I hope so. But um, we were thinking of the tech industry as basically Frankenstein's monster, which was the theme, at least a part of the Science Friday show, that something's being created in Silicon Valley that um, is, 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 well, potentially monstrous. I think I'll quote a bit from the editorial in the magazine on this subject which said that not long ago, being the boss of a big Western tech firm was a dream job. As the billions rolled in, so did the plaudits. Google, Facebook, Amazon, and the others were making the world a better place. 
Today, these companies are accused of being big, anti-competitive, addictive, and destructive to democracy. B-A-A-D-D, bad. Regulators find them, politicians grill them, and one-time backers warn of their powers to cause harm. The Economist took the position that much of this tech lash is misguided, because naturally the Economist would say what they said in the very next sentence, which is that the presumption that big businesses must necessarily be wicked is plain wrong, which, to which they added, Apple is to be admired as the world's most valuable listed company for the simple reason that it makes things people want to buy even while facing fierce competition. Mr. Millen points out that the same can be said of your local crack dealer. At any rate, after making sure that we're going to be too hard in the companies, in the next paragraph they say, but, but big tech platforms, particularly Facebook, Google, and Amazon, do indeed raise a worry about fair competition. That's partly because they often benefit from legal exemptions. Unlike publishers, Facebook and Google are rarely held responsible for what users do on them. And for years, most American buyers on Amazon did not pay sales tax. Yes, Amazon is now the world's largest corporation. And to no small degree, um, that position came about because people thought these struggling young tech companies needed to be cut some slack so they didn't require them to pay sales tax for years. Think about that next time you want to look for your Barnes & Noble and find out that the nearest one is now 30 miles away. Interesting discussion a couple days ago on Michael Krasny's forum program about this issue. They note that it's pretty tough to um, prosecute these companies for antitrust violations because you have to show that the consumer's been harmed by their actions. And they point out that Google and Facebook are just going to grin and say, yeah, show, show where we're harming people. And the author being interviewed did point out that that's tough to do, even though it seems pretty clear that For example, one piece of harm that we might attribute to Facebook, certainly Facebook was contributory to, was the election of Donald Trump. But we're going to save that for another day. The Economist does note, as we noted on this program repeatedly, that many of their services appear to be free, but users pay for them by giving away their data. The magazine notes that by some estimates, Amazon captures over 40% of online shopping in America. It's noted, too, that firms cannot do without Google, which in some countries processes more than 90% of web searches. And it should be noted that Facebook and Google control two-thirds of America's online ad revenues. The magazine asks what to do. In the past, societies have tackled monopolies, either by breaking them up, as with Standard Oil back in 1911, or regulating them as a public utility, as with AT&T in 1913. Today, both those approaches have large drawbacks. The traditional tools of utilities regulation, such as price controls and profit caps, are hard to apply, since most products are free and would come at a high price in foregone investment and innovation. I do have to question some of this reverence for innovation, frankly, and I think I should pause and change gears slightly. To point out some of these innovations the economist is so worried about losing, referring to the San Francisco Chronicle, January 16th issue, the business report (laughs) noted that floor sensors may be helping retailers in the future, noting that online clicks give retailers valuable insight into consumer behavior while people are trying to figure out what they can learn from footsteps. A Milwaukee startup 
Scanalytics is helping businesses explore with floor sensors that track people's actual movements in the store. Yes, without innovations like these, it's easy to see why Western civilization could collapse. And, dear listener, what are we going to do when there's self-driving cars everywhere and accidents will still happen, as they, of course, will? Who do you sue when you've collided with a self-driving vehicle? There's currently a lawsuit in San Francisco concerning a motorcyclist who was evidently cut off by a self-driving Chevrolet Bolt that aborted a lane change while it was driving autonomously. And speaking of dubious tech, how about that 38 minutes of terror over in Hawaii? Apparently, messages were received on Hawaiian cell phones saying, Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. That's a bad thing to wake up to. I got a first-hand report from a friend of mine whose sister received that message. She said her sister and her husband weren't quite sure what to make of it. They assumed it might be valid and deciding there wasn't a hell of a lot to be done about it. They cracked open a bottle of wine. We assumed to do so they did not have to hijack a military vehicle. Apparently her brother-in-law was saying things like, well, we ought to get out valuable papers. The sister was like, oh, come on. If this is real, those are all going to get burned up. Kind of reminds me of that line from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. When Sundance has to admit he's afraid to jump into the river because I can't swim. To which Paul Newman's Butch Cassidy replies, What are you worried about? The fall's probably going to kill you. And on that note, let us take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got lots more. Stick around. <laughs> 